0: Welcome back to IGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheep.
1: And I'm Jill Weinbanks, and today's Jill's pin is the number one. And that's because we're going to be talking about issue number one in Ohio. I originally bought it because Donald Trump was individual number one in an early indictment, but now we're talking issue number one.
0: Exactly one week ago, Ohio voters, Democrats and Republicans overwhelmingly voted against issue number one, which would have raised the threshold to pass a constitutional amendment from more than 50% to more than 60%. This was an effort pushed by Ohio Republicans in response to a ballot measure that Ohioans will vote for this November that would enshrine reproductive rights into the state's constitution. Today we're gonna discuss why Ohio Republicans wanted to increase the threshold, what last week's resounding rejection of that effort means for Ohio, and lessons for Democrats across the nation as we head into 2024. It will be a great episode, but before we do that, Jill and I are gonna talk about some of the latest news that has dropped uh, as of last night, Monday night, which is that Donald Trump and 18 other people have been indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, for their efforts to try to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Um, Jill, this seems like, you know, this is number four. I don't know, you know, when America will, or I don't know, when Republicans will finally see this and say you know we are done with Trump but what is your reaction to what we saw you know it was a pretty sprawling indictment with a lot of Rico charges um walk us through that and what your top line reactions were
1: well you know it's sad day in America when it's the fourth criminal indictment of a former president who was twice impeached and each of them is very serious this one is an in-depth look at one part of one state's problem as set forth in the Jack Smith federal uh, case. So it overlaps a little, but goes much more in-depth. One of the big differences, of course, is that Fonnie Willis is using racketeer influence corrupt organization law, the RICO law, which someone on Twitter said Well, finally, an indictment that names Donald Trump what he really is, a racketeer. (laughs) So I thought that was a pretty accurate assessment. And usually
0: they they use RICO against mob bosses and and mafia. Well, the
1: the federal law started actually just before I joined the Justice Department. It's an old law. And it was intended for the mafia. It was intended for organized crime. Actually, back then we called it La Cosa Nostra, LCN. Um, then it became the mafia, and now it's just organized crime. And this is saying that Donald Trump is part of organized crime, that he's part of an organized, corrupt organization, that he ran a corrupt organization. And they lay out uh, very, very compelling facts. And the Georgia law is very broad in terms of what the underlying predicate criminal acts are, which includes forgery. So when he signed a certification, that was a forgery because he knew it wasn't true. When the mm-hmm. fake electors signed their certifica- certificates, that was forgery. So mm-hmm. they're charged with you know the crime of forgery, but also the conspiracy to take down the government through these criminal activities. Um, it has, with 19 defendants, A very long road ahead of it in terms of when could you get a trial date. Number two, you will never have 19 in the criminal court for two reasons. One is because many of them will flip and cooperate and plead. Two is because even if they didn't, you cannot fit 19 defendants and two lawyers each into any courtroom in America. You'd have to use a football field. Um, And I know there are indoor football fields, but I don't think that's the appropriate thing for a criminal trial of the former president. So in Watergate, by the way, we had the ceremonial courtroom in the District of Columbia. And have you gone to visit it while you're there for the summer? I have not, no. Well, you should go over to the courthouse and go look at the ceremonial courtroom. Uh, And you will see we were end-to-end tables between the... Prosecution had one table. Mitchell had one table. Haldeman had one table. Ehrlichman had one table. And by the way, Haldeman is now the first, but Meadows is the second chief of staff (laughs) to be indicted. So there's that similarity. Um, And Parkinson and Mardian had their tables with their lawyers. And there was no room to move around that courtroom. You couldn't have fit a sixth defendant in you, 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 you would have had, I mean, and certainly not a seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, you know, you're going to have to do it in trials of five or six each at the most. So
0: do you think that people will then flip? Will will people start cooperating? Will they, will there be any,
1: well, they won't start cooperating because they can't fit in the courtroom. They'll start cooperating because the Georgia Rico law has a minimum mandatory sentence of five years and the state does not allow the governor to uh, pardon Mm -hmm. and the pardon board can only pardon after the full sentence is served and all fines paid. So, and I think it may be five years after that. So no one's going to get pardoned. They're going to have to serve their full sentence. So I think they may start flipping. Because they don't want to go to jail. And many of them are in their 70s. They don't want to spend the rest of their lives in jail. So that will drive them. Also, because the indictment lays out pretty clear facts. There's a lot of evidence. And um, as they start getting the discovery and seeing exactly how compelling the evidence is, I think they will start cooperating.
0: I mean, I, I just can't help but think about, I mean, you know, they, they went through so much effort and so much energy and, and wasted so much money all to flip Georgia. And even if they flip Georgia, I mean, I, I was looking at the numbers this morning. Donald Trump lost by 38 electoral college votes. If you flip Georgia, that would have been 16 electoral college <laughs> votes, which he still would have needed 22. And, you know, it's just I mean,
1: well, remember this, in, you know, the federal indictment says michigan pennsylvania right. it's yeah. they they know they needed they more right, um right. but and and they lost by significant enough margins yeah. that they were delusional if they thought they could flip a state right. um they right. use in in the Chesboro um Cheeseboro. memo yeah. cheese cheesebro, mm. <laughs> uh, or cheeseburger as stephanie miller called him this morning um Chesbro this memo refers to and says, well, Kennedy did it in 1960. Kennedy was behind by 114 votes. I may be wrong on it being 114, but it's pretty close to 114 votes. And there was a recount pending, a lawsuit. I mean, there was actual chance that they count would change and in fact of course it I'm sorry it was in Hawaii that the vote was it was the first time Hawaii had been a state and voted Hawaii and Alaska that was their first time as uh members of the states of the United States um so it was it was a very very close race that ended up flipping to him and so they went ahead and they filed because they believed it would flip and that the judge in ruling said it's a good thing you did that because that is a prerequisite. So they're right on, it's a prerequisite, but it's a prerequisite and legal. If you're close to winning, not if you have no chance of winning, that is just not how it works. Period. It's not.
0: Well, so, you know, we, we talked about some of the differences between federal and state law. And one of the things that people are very excited about um, is the possibility of this, if it is still being done in the Fulton County Courthouse, um, of possible television, uh, possible, you know, courtrooms, um, or sorry, cameras in the courtrooms. But there's a lot of talk on Twitter and in the legal world about. The Trump team trying to remove this from the Georgia state case to the federal court, um, and if that happens, you know I know both of us are very passionate about cameras in the courtroom. And hopefully, we'll do an episode with an expert on that um, soon. But if that happens, are our, our hopes basically gone? Will will they? Will there be cameras? Well,
1: yeah, no. Well, I am urging the Chief Justice, the Judicial Conference, or Congress to take action to change laws that are almost eight decades old, mm-hmm. laws from the 1940s that prohibit cameras in federal courts. And an exception was made for some uh, pilot projects, which worked fine. Yeah. Everybody saw that they worked fine. We all know they worked. work in state court, witness the Derek Chauvin trial for murdering George Floyd. People were riveted to the television, And they learned. It was an educational experience. They accepted the verdict much more readily because they saw the trial. I think cameras are really important. But if it's transferred from Georgia, then federal rules are going to apply. And unless the chief justice does the right thing and changes it, there will be no filming. And we will have to rely, as we currently do, on reporters telling us what they saw or heard that they think is important enough to share with us. And that's not the way it should be.
0: And I will say even yesterday, you know, MSNBC carrying just that, you know, the, the clerk bringing the indictment to the judge and the judge signing off on it and then, you know, walking. I mean, just that moment was so riveting and just imagining if we could yeah. see the entire trial on TV. I mean, it could really make a difference. And, you know, one of the things I always refer back to is just the number of people who watched the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. (laughs) And it's like, you know, let's not put them in the same
1: category. Sorry, this is not comparable.
0: To show that, you know, with all of our streaming platforms, we could really get a lot of people to actually pay attention to the legal system and to really understand what's going on and the extent to which Trump and his What they call in the indictment, the the enterprise tried to overturn the Georgia election, and I think that could do a lot to also spur civic engagement and hopefully a passion to change things. But you know, I saw
1: that in Watergate where we had the televised hearings, um, really changed people's minds about how corrupt the president then Nixon was, and. It makes a big difference in acceptance, yes. and I think the January sixth committee served a purpose too right. in laying the foundation for the public accepting yeah. the indictments that Smith has brought, yeah. and 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 that DA uh, Willis has brought as well. Yeah. So yeah, but cameras are important. Um, I urge everyone to read about it. I'm I'm hoping to uh, write an op-ed that I hope will get published about it and, and we'll
0: we cover on this show as well um yeah. and, and because it's such an important and you know even if you know regardless of what happens i think we just have to talk about the fact that you know this is an 80 more than 80 year old um you know law and you know it's time for some change i think we really it have to surely it surely
1: right is on. cameras have changed and people yeah. have changed and right. the law hasn't but yeah. it might so, now's maybe a good time to yeah. bring in our guest we have a terrific guest today his name is david pepper He helped lead the organizing efforts in Ohio that made last week's result possible. He has a great background. He's been the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. He's been a councilman for Cincinnati. uh, uh, By the way, the city in which I argued my very first time in federal court was in Cincinnati. So I love that he's from Cincinnati. And um, he also has been a member of the Hamilton County Ohio Board of Commissioners. He's written many, many books about democracy, including The People's House, um, and which he subtitled Laboratories of Autocracy. And most recently, Saving Democracy, which is what you and I are working very hard to do. That was called a subtitled A User's Manual to for every American. David, we are very grateful to have you with us today.
2: Thank you. I'm honored to be with you today
0: it's such a pleasure to have you on and we of course want to talk about um what happened last week in ohio um so let's start by talking about issue one and that effort to basically increase the state's threshold to add amendments to the state constitution walk us through why republicans wanted to do this
2: so you know in a bizarre way and i only say this now that we defeated that terrible idea issue one in one way was helpful. So I've been literally running around since I wrote my first nonfiction book, Laboratories of Autocracy, trying to show people, listen, these people know that they have a minority worldview, a deeply toxic worldview. And they know, Mitch McConnell knows, the Koch brothers know, that if they have elections that are essentially referenda on their extreme views, they know they would lose. And that's why their entire political battle is about How do you subvert democracy when you have a minority unpopular worldview so that that worldview still stays in place even when people don't like it? And I've been trying to and that's why they gerrymander and that's why they suppress the Obama coalition. And that's why they do all these lawless things. It's because they're desperate to keep in place unpopular views that would never sustain in a healthy democracy. And some people said to me, David, that's such an amazing, you know, aggressive accusation. Um, Do you really think that? And I've had to say things like, well, yeah, look, they're studying Viktor Orban or, um, you know, (laughs) something else. Well, now I can say, yeah, look at issue one in Ohio. Issue one was the perfect encapsulation of their strategy, which is they knew that a referendum this November on abortion will likely end up like the one in Kansas. The polls are very clear in Ohio. It's about sixty forty pro choice just south of it. Rather than fighting a battle they assumed was a losing battle, like they don't want to fight anywhere, they just want to change the rules, and they're willing to break the law to change the rules. So they demanded a special election that uh, in August, which they had made it illegal only months before, to to basically trick the voters to raise the threshold to sixty percent so that even when their view is about 41%, they still win, even when they would otherwise lose. So it, it, issue one was sort of the, the, the perfect summary of this very blunt instrument they put together. How can we continue to have unpopular v- views, be the laws of places that don't agree with us? And issue one was this obviously this mechanism to do that. The good news is they're to sneak it in an August election, we're always paying attention, backfired. People saw for what it was. And this incredible coalition of Democrats, independents, and Republicans came together and absolutely rejected it. But, but I think it's a really good sort of back signal to the country that, yes, these are people who know that they will lose the fair democracy, so they are willing to rig the rules and then sometimes break the law To create a system where they win even when they're losing and they win because they're rigging the rules of democracy to get there. And that's what they did in Ohio. It didn't work. Sadly, it does work in many places. And gerrymandering is one of the most blatant examples of that all over the country.
1: So I have two follow-up questions from what you just said. One is that you said that August had been made illegal. And there's good reason for that because people are on vacation. It's just before Labor Day and nobody votes how did they get around that they just made it illegal or did they make it illegal starting in november
2: well welcome to ohio this is a really first of all and you know this from all the incredible work you do on the law all around the country lawlessness builds on lawlessness it's like donald trump but projected down to the state level once people see that they can get away with breaking the law well they go break it again in ohio they violated seven ohio supreme court orders finding that their gerrymandered maps violate the constitution wow. and guess what it worked they are sitting right now on district maps that violate the ohio constitution based upon the most recent ohio supreme court ruling that no one overturned and so these are people already in power having violated the constitution so when it comes to lawfulness they just they, they've been rewarded for breaking the law. So here's the sequence on that election. They didn't just ban August special elections, they celebrated it. Like there was this enormous breakthrough. The guy, who, the guy who pushed it said, and Frank LaRose, our horrific Secretary of State, literally said this was a massive accomplishment. And one guy said it was the he, his whole career, he'd want to get rid of them because he said they were too expensive and they weren't Democratic because too few people voted. They said these are things that an out-of-state special interest could take advantage of because no one's paying attention. So they're almost admitting what they're later doing. But here's, here's the tell. So they get rid of August special elections. But then they have a problem. They want one. They wanted one once they saw the signatures being gathered in earnest. And so they have a problem. They've just banned something that they need. And they needed it in August to get ahead of the November referendum. And and Jill, this is the shocking part. This is kind of like how Donald Trump always shows he's guilty. Well, what did they do? They started pushing a bill that led to issue one, but at the same time, they pushed a parallel bill to repeal their ban of August special elections. But guess what? It never passed because they couldn't get the votes for it. The bill so they admitted that they knew it was illegal. Right. They try and get people to repeal it. No, they don't get a majority. And do you know what they did? They just mm-hmm. demanded an election on the day anyway. Having failed to repeal the bill, they just passed a resolution saying, we're going to do it anyway. So and did, that gets did you go to, the to court? Ohio, it went to the Ohio Supreme Court. And they said. Now, as partisan as they are, and it ruled. And this is what happens when, again, if this was another country, we'd all be saying yes. there's no rule of law left. It's Ohio. Oh. The Ohio Supreme Court, four to three. And you'll like this as a lawyer, ruled, but you'll, you'll like the little tell in a second that yes, indeed, just like they can set, that just like they can be in districts and violate the Ohio Constitution, the legis. this is sort of a a, um, a, a Moore v. Harper kind of argument. Yes, indeed, the state house can set an election on a day, even when that day violates the Ohio Revised Code. The Ohio Supreme Court said they can break their own law. You should read the three dissents. They're really powerful. And here's the tell about how bad the argument was. It was three Republican justices saying, yes, the State House can break its own law. Three Democratic justices that said no, they can't. The fourth justice, also a Republican, concurred, but did not sign on to the majority opinion. Didn't even explain why he thought it was okay. That's how unconvincing the three people saying it was okay. So They basically gained it out that a partisan court would allow them to break their own law in, in a state with no rule of law left. The Supreme Court said, You're right, you can do it. The whole thing was outrageous. But so you know, they knew it was illegal when they tried to repeal it. And then when they failed, they still demanded anyway. That's the state of things in states where these people literally, they've been living in states with no accountability because of gerrymandering. And in many cases, no real rule of law left when it comes to politics, and and this election was literally held on a day to this date that violated the Ohio Revised Code, and the highest court in Ohio allowed it to happen. It's all outrageous.
1: It is outrageous, and it doesn't bode well for Alabama, which is also ignoring the court, the Supreme Court of the United no. States, Absolutely. order to fix its maps, um, and and or for Trump who is ignoring all sorts of court orders uh, for which he hasn't been held accountable, but I believe judge Chutkin is the one who's going to do it. My second follow-up question though, was whether given how the vote turned out, do you think that if you had gone with, you know, if you had lost issue one and you may notice I'm wearing an issue one pin, um, that you would have won on the merits that you would have had, at least 60% of Ohioans supporting the right to reproductive freedom.
2: I actually think it's very unlikely. I mean, we just crushed issue one. Issue one lost in very Republican counties. Um, The turnout was well higher in blue counties than rural red counties. You had Kasich and Taft against issue one. And with all of that, it still only hit 57 percent. No, it shows you just how issue one lost in five of the six of the largest media markets in Ohio. So you have this absolute drubbing, crushing defeat, but it still only was 5743. And what that shows you is you can have a broad consensus in a state like Ohio. And This is true of a lot of states. But once the other side is putting big money and getting their vote out and all that, it's still really, really, really hard to get to sixty percent. And, and that threshold, I went back in time and as I did a final sort of tour on the state, we've had a lot of major changes in Ohio. You know, term limits for governors, and and we integrated the National Guard. Good for us. We it, we lifted the minimum wage. None of those hit sixty percent. None hmm. of them. We eliminated the words "white man" from their constitution as related to who could vote in Ohio, simply to be consistent with the U.S. Constitution. It didn't hit 60%. So changes that now you look back and think, "Well, my gosh, those were obvious, did not. So the point is, I don't think it would've hit 60. I don't predict it will, because hitting 60 in a state like Ohio is incredibly hard. And and what what does it do in terms of the expectations? In the future, let's say the, the, the big donors who are helping the far right, they may not give nearly as much if if they know it's a majority to get uh, choice into place. But if they know all they got to do is spend money to get to 41 percent, it's a much better investment. So it, it also changes the entire mindset about how you win mm-hmm. and lose these things. So this thing was a real poison pill. And I think I think that 60 percent in another thing that was a. Another poison pill was the requirement that there be signatures gathered to a certain threshold in all 88 counties, which would have given any single county a veto to even have Mm -hmm. the election. You put those two together and we would have literally been, no, it would have been the end of these things. Uh, Who would invest in those things? I don't think most people would. So 60%, even though the polling's at about 59, the idea that you actually get to 60 in the end of a contested, a, a, a a battle over a woman's right to choose i just i think it'd be very hard to get to that
0: so can you talk a little bit about some of the organizing efforts that kind of happened after you know issue number one was put on the ballot what was the energy like you were on the ground organizing with people give us some examples of what that looked like
2: well first of all there's a it was an incredible coalition i i the, the last time this really happened to this size was when Kasich, um to his regret i think tried to get rid of collective bargaining for public employees and he included police and fire and other states have not done that. And it blew up in his face. Um, But that was, uh, there was a lot of folks who had a direct interest in stopping that. This one was more of a broader interest in democracy and man to give credit where credit's due. Because they were not very subtle about what they were building, a lot of people worked very hard long before they actually passed it. We hoped to stop it numerous times, and it never happened. It came close a few times. So there were people building, and then the, the the best part is how much. And I was right there; was one of the people who was asked to leave the state house. Um, we were there making a lot of noise the day they passed it, and to and to frame it all as this outrageous attack, this illegal attack again. They said this was on a day that they had made illegal. The framing from the very outset was really important. And so to to give credit to the the labor leaders, the, the groups like Common Cause, this amazing coalition that included the Libertarian Party, that came together very early and it came together very publicly within minutes of the vote being made in the statehouse. The press conference in the statehouse of the no campaign was held. With all these ch- these people behind them, and I was in the room. I wasn't writing the press conference, but chanting "No!" Ohio voters could tell this is something's off here. While, they may not know the details, but something is off. Why are people so upset about this? This doesn't seem right. The framing from the moment that passed—it was sometime in mid-May, I think—was uh, really, really important. And then it just built from there. And that initial, you know, the truth is. Their, the heart of their argument, the, the basic language of we have to protect Ohio's Constitution from outside interests. If you were to pull that with no other context, I think it would pull pretty well. So it was really important that the side against it framed early on before they even said their argument oh, this is about a corrupt statehouse increasing its power at your expense and trying to stop women from having the right to choose in november the right to choose and once it was framed that way early they came on real strong late the final weeks with the with the the line i said but it was already so framed against them they couldn't claw it back as hard as they tried so so that initial framing that initial outrage really and i was there you could feel it it felt different it felt big Mm -hmm. and that kind of dominoed into hundreds of co- uh, hundreds of groups of coalitions across the whole spectrum. Every ed board pounding away, like not just one editorial, weekly, you know, a couple times a week. So it really, and then a great on the ground organizing effort. I mean, for an August election, hundreds of thousands of doors knocked, millions of phone calls, postcards from all over the country. This thing got nationalized. And all of a sudden yeah. election day, we see almost a midterm level turnout and what was an election that was originally projected at 8% turnout, which is what they hoped for. So all of that crescendoed, but the beginning stage of it was really important framing and getting people energized to do what ultimately happened.
1: Yeah, it it was a national thing where um, I saw many tweets from all over the country, including my own, saying vote no on Number one, Uh, uh, Hubble, who writes a wonderful substack newsletter, uh, had put out things that people could do to help Ohio to defeat this. Uh, So it did become really wonderful. And um, obviously, the the vote, I think, was a reflection of support for abortion rights, Um, but also, interestingly, a concern about minority rule and what that means for democracy And it's hard to get interest in democracy, which is a uh, sort of generic, generalized, overarching thing that's not the same as, you know, am I putting food on the table? So how did you go about getting people to recognize what democracy means and why it must be protected? Because that could play out in campaigning against uh, a potential dictator for president.
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. First of all, one of the things that's so good about this and it 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 helps so much that you and others and robert hubble and others nationalize it we are seeing now a winning streak for democracy going back to last august in kansas that extended through all the secretary of state election denier candidates losing last november picking up state houses like michigan and pennsylvania that normally we never pick up in the midterm with the white house rolling into april with the wisconsin supreme court race and now this when the national democracy champions say and see that there's a threat to democracy somewhere and it's happening more and more than it used to, where we only focused on a few Senate celebrity races, they're rallying. And when we rally, we are winning these things. So, so what you did and the fact that, you know, Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow and all of them made this a big, all of that turned this into a democracy battle. And we are winning these battles when we figure out. And the reason that I'm excited is, that first book I wrote, Laboratories of Autocracy, was all about trying to say to people, the true front line are these state-level battles. And I wrote it because I didn't think anyone thought that. And in the last couple of years, you really see an appreciation of it. Um, the Really important question, though. And one of the things I go through in the second book called Saving Democracy is, if we only run on sort of a 30,000-foot argument over democracy, while, while some people will, that's enough to motivate them. For many other people, it feels academic. Yeah. yeah. Or they've, or democ- You know, the younger generation, they they haven't seen democracy be all that great for them. I mean, they're seeing it screw them over again and again. So saying save democracy, some people will say, "Well, I, I, I will," but it's not like it's working out that well for me. Look at student debt. Look at climate change. Look at gun violence. So that thirty thousand foot argument will work with some, but it's not enough to win. And so I think the really important thing that's happening and has especially happened after Dobbs, although there are other ways to do it, is to, is to say there's a reason they're attacking democracy. And it's to do things to you and to the majority of Americans or people in your state that you don't want done. And the reason they're, they're attacking democracy is to impose those things on you. And those things need to feel real to people. And after Dobbs, boy, has it felt real to people. And I think one reason those sector of state, again, those election denying sector of state candidates lost is there was a connection between what they would do to democracy and the fact that they all basically supported, you know, the end of Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And the connection between democracy going down and what that would do to people's lives made them very tough candidates to win. That also would have hurt someone like a Kerry Lake. Well, this issue was literally the perfect combination of that. They're attacking democracy for minority rule to stop you protecting your right to choose in November and cases like that 10-year-old rape victim being forced to go to Indiana. So it was the perfect connection of the democracy framing, which is important, but the real-world consequences if they succeed in subverting democracy. And for some voters, like you said, sitting around that table worrying about the next day in in their challenging life for them and their family, the second piece is really important, yeah. And, and so, my advice to anyone running is: a lot of the stuff that I would talk about, or that we would talk about democracy, that's not your thirty-second ad. The, but the frame is they're doing it because, in the end, you they don't want you to have a choice over over you know again choice itself, or in some places because they're destroying your local public schools, right. or because of gun violence. They want to achieve something that, that you don't want, and the only way to, for them to get there is attacking democracy. So I think that that's a one-two punch that was inherent in this campaign, that I would say in other types of campaigns, you want to make those connections. Josh Shapiro did that very well when he won the Pennsylvania Governor's Race. He made it about real freedom, about yeah. democracy and choice. He made that connection. So I think that's a really important one-two sort of real-world punch you got you to do if you're going to win on these issues
0: so i think that's the perfect segue to talk about 2024 because ohio is going to be a really key state for democrats and this nation um you once were chair of the democratic party in ohio do you think that message that you just laid out is something that ohio should lean on in 2024 and talk about i mean sherrod brown is running in 2024 i know he's um running a tough seat how do democrats channel that not just in ohio but across the country
2: well, I mean a couple things. First of all, I do think in hindsight now that we know we beat it, the Republicans did um, Democrats in Ohio a real favor because November 22 was a tough outcome in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Tim Ryan lost by six against Shady Vance, who's who's honestly appalling in so many ways. Our governor candidate lost by 26 points. So the first thing I'd say is get organized. That would have been hard to do after 22 in a vo- in a vacuum. But because of issue one and now the referendum in November, we've got got coalitions who who not only have been organized, but now they're fired up because they saw that it worked. Mm -hmm. And they're going to stay fired up through November trying to make sure we pass this um, referendum to protect protect a woman's right to choose. Um, And now the other thing, I'm a big believer in, and you may have heard me talk about this, we also have to start running everywhere. Well, now we have a reason to run against every single person who voted, put issue one on the ballot, violating their own law, don't we? Uh, So I think, Gearing up, we're gearing up now, and that's what we should be doing. Everyone should be doing that everywhere. We we shouldn't be watching this god-awful primary between Trump and DeSantis. We should be interested in the criminal trials of Trump, but don't let that stop us from organizing. Do the organizing while we watch that stuff, but be sure to be organizing to run everywhere, to engage everywhere. And issue one gave us a head start to and and so in 24, there's a huge opportunity. I mean, shared. It is his toughest re-election because of the year, because Trump's on the ballot. But he's also still, uh, I think, positioned to win. Uh, it, it, getting the right opponent helps. My guess is he will get a Trumpy-like opponent, like a J.D. Vance. And that may sound worrisome at first, but let me give you a quick, a quick Ohio um, take for a second. The governor candidate named Mike DeWine won by 26. J.D. Vance won by six. It's a massive spread. Why did the governor candidate win? Because he felt moderate to people. He had done a good job during COVID. So a lot of suburban women rewarded him with their vote last November. J.D. Vance felt like Trump. He didn't get those votes. He only won by six. In a year, the top ticket won by 26. You put Sherrod Brown in the race against the guy who's acting like J.D. Vance did, knowing that Biden, if he doesn't win Ohio, will lose it by single digits. Sherrod's gonna overperform as much as Tim Ryan did, if not more. So I think Sherrod, I think if they especially they put a, a JD Vance, and that's what they're doing. J.D. Vance has already endorsed someone who's very Trumpy. I think Trump will endorse that person. Carrie Lake was in town last week. They're all lining up around a very Trump-like candidate. And so I think Sherrod has a path to victory. It's harder than in the past. But if you look at what happened in 22, it shows you that path very clearly. And the map from last week shows the same thing. But here's the other opportunity, and I know Jill will appreciate this as a lawyer. We can flip that Ohio Supreme Court that just voted in that illegal election. Um, just like in Wisconsin, uh, we, we will have a chance with one pickup on that Supreme Court to flip the court and have a fair court that can look fairly at issues like an illegal election, or if we pass this referendum on choice, And so there's an opportunity not just to get shared elective, but also to flip the court. You know, when I was chair of the party, and as a lawyer, this was especially a moment of pride for me. We had our Wisconsin moment two years ago. We actually flipped the Ohio Supreme Court. And this is the part that feels like a, a lawless foreign country. That legislature immediately attacked the court. They ignored its rulings. And like North Carolina, they changed the rules of how we elect justices. They added party ID to the ballot. They moved Mm. the races up to the top so they'd be as partisan as everything else, and it worked. And two years later, they flipped the court back. So we have to get it back. Uh, But know, and this is a warning I have for Wisconsin Democrats, when they lose these battles, it's like Alabama too. They don't just accept the loss. They will break the laws to stay in power, including court orders. It worked for them in Ohio. That's why I think they'll try something in Wisconsin, and that's why Alabama is doing what it's doing. They are seeing that until the criminal, until the judicial system is willing to really stand up to lawlessness, they get away with delay and they've gotten away with thumbing their nose at court orders as high as the state Supreme Court. And now we're, they're trying to do the same thing with the Ohio, with the United States Supreme Court. So um, well, you make
1: a very good case for having some kind of accountability, because if we don't have accountability totally. at all these levels, right. it's going to keep on happening Give me a one sentence answer for what is the best message for Democrats going forward into 2024. I think
2: the heart of it is is the economic success of Joe Biden contrasted to the extremism of the other side, which is finally exposed in its full view between Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and all the state houses they control. That contrast should win us a lot of elections if we're smart enough to take advantage of it. That so. was a semicolon in the middle. so that was <laughs> Okay, so we'll count
1: that as one sentence. Got the it. problem with that is that for reasons I do not understand, people don't feel, and that's maybe the more important thing than think, they don't yeah. feel like they're better off. How no. do you make people feel they're better off?
2: You know, I, mean, I I think the number one thing is we gotta get out there. And and getting out there isn't this, isn't just Joe Biden uh, getting out to states. He's going to Wisconsin the next couple of days, I think talk about this. Um, it's getting and this is my obsession in this new book, it's getting candidates to run everywhere. Fifty percent of Tennessee Republicans who voted the two Justins off did not have an opponent the prior November. 60% of the Oklahoma State House Republicans, no opponent last November. In Texas, Beto O'Rourke ran. Dozens of districts uncontested. Millions of people don't even hear from us. And, and, and Stacey Abrams yeah. and Raphael Warnock, dozens of uncontested districts. What yeah. happens when we're not running? What ha- And I see it in Ohio all the time. They take credit for the good things we do. The vi- The lieutenant governor of Ohio runs around the state every day bragging about the low unemployment the infrastructure the chips act all of it and when you're and this is happening everywhere oklahoma the governor you'd think he was a democrat who voted for the chips act or the infrastructure bill but when we're not running in half these places they take credit for what we've done and there's no one there to rebut them because we're not running and then they, any problem that people don't like, they say is the fault of the Democrats in Congress. Often the very bills they're taking credit for. And so I think we have to do it at the top. But the best way to get ourselves in a position to talk about what we've done and, and, and how it's helped people is to be smart enough to get ourselves on ballots across the country, not only in suburbs, swing areas, and obviously we're in cities. But get ourselves on the ballots of all the rural areas where the margins were just a lot thinner last week for issue one. Get ourselves running. So you may not win in those places, but you'll have a message. And you can be the one to stand up, you know, have a have a press conference, a block down from the one where the Republicans are taking credit for something. And you say, I'm happy about this, too, but those people have nothing to do with it. They were against it. And when you leave half the districts unopposed, which we do. You literally are giving a gift to their messaging and you're never getting ours out there. So that's not going to ch- If someone's having a rough time of it economically, that won't change that. But the numbers are pretty clear that there's a lot of lift right now in the economy. And how do we know that? Because in Ohio, it's the Republicans who are actually saying that and taking credit for all of it. And we let it happen when we're not in the game in these places, able to rebut or at least say, well, this was had nothing. To-. We're happy, too. But it wasn't because of you. It's because of us.
0: So I agree with everything you just said, but I just have a follow up because, I mean, one of the things that we saw happen in 2022 and that Maxwell Frost, who was the first Gen Zer to be elected um, to Congress, talk a lot about is how hard it is to actually run for office. And yes, we want people to run in every area. But how do we get people to actually take that first step and provide them resources? Does that come from the Ohio Democratic Party? Does that come from outside organizations? How do we get people to kind of break those barriers that keep people from running for office?
2: That's a great question. And I'll start by saying it's not for everybody. I don't think we say to everyone, go run. you got to be at the right time in your life to take on something that's very difficult. Um, But you also don't have to have all sorts of Uber degrees and all sorts of stuff. What I'm looking for are just members of good standing in their community who are authentic and are in public service for the right reason. Um, I can't think of a better candidate, for example, than someone who's taught history for 25 years at local high school who's touched every family, who's gained the respect of that community. I'd love to have, That's there's so many good candidates out there who've already been doing service. This is a different kind of service. Here's what we have to do in addition to the training and support. And this is a part of, this is, a, I put a lot of time in this book. Right now, the infrastructure of the Democratic Party generally only supports people running in swing districts for federal purposes. That infrastructure does not value running everywhere. And so why do we have 50 percent of Republicans in Tennessee uncontested or so many? Because we have an infrastructure that is literally saying we're fine with that. And so when people finally do say, and I've I've met some of these folks, when people step up in a tough district that they're probably going to lose, they don't get any help. They don't get their calls returned no one thinks they matter when they say where they're running in a tough district people want to get off the phone oh what the heck you're not going to win that why are you doing it we need to change our entire frame about those runs Mm -hmm. and there are groups doing this like run for something others Mm -hmm. if you are running for office when democracy is under attack and you are running in a tough district you're a freaking hero you are a patriot and your public service doesn't begin if you win it began the day you started running And that mindset has to shape everything we build. That's why I'm trying to create organizations that crowdsource support, not to the candidates we think are most likely to win, but the ones running in really tough districts that we should support because what they're doing is absolutely patriotic public service from the moment they're running. They're giving people a choice. They're providing transparency. They're holding extremists accountable. They're lifting turnout for other people. And and so I go through in the book a whole chapter, how do we build an infrastructure that values running everywhere? And the good news is there are organizations that are sort of on their own, grassroots up doing this, run for something. There's one called Tech for Campaigns. There's one called Arena, which is providing training for staff. We need more support for the candidates themselves. So it's there, but it's not core mission right now. We need to scale up that infrastructure so that people, again, if... If you run for office and you sense from the, all, from the summer on that no one cared and you knocked on doors and got yelled at and no one backed you up and that election is over, not only will you never run again, but anyone you know who says, hey, you ran, should I run next time? That person will say, no, they don't care. Don't run. Well, that's why we have so many uncontested races. We need the people who run in tough places to literally feel like the heroes that, that they are. And we we need a whole infrastructure that does that. It's starting to build, by the way. That's the good news. Yeah. Now, Victor and
1: I have talked often about how important local races are running for the school board, because that's where a lot of stuff happens. And, you know, I came from a federal government background and thought that was where everything happened. And then I went into state government and realized that's where you really touch people's lives and in the city where you really touch people's life. But let's let's end this by talking about two things. One. Um, you In your books, you talk about the problems, the causes. Let's talk about the solutions. Mm-hmm. Give me maybe the three best solutions to combat the attacks on democracy.
2: So the most important solution is that every single person doesn't accept the false narrative that the battle for democracy will be settled in some swing state far away or in some courtroom near Mar-a-Lago or in D.C. That that you can save democracy even if you're not on one of those juries and if you don't happen to live in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Their front line in attacking democracy are the state houses of all the states. That's bad news because it's a deep attack on democracy. It's not just surface level. But there's good news with that, and that is that you, everyone listening, I don't care if you're in red Oklahoma, blue New York, where the turnout was too low last November, you are all on the front line of democracy and where it's being attacked, which means you have so much more power to lift democracy where you are than you ever imagined. You don't only need to send a check to John Fetterman because that's a swing state. You don't only need to cheer on, you know, Jack Smith. You can lift democracy where you are school board, state house, engaging voters. So that's the, the first is for everyone to see the attack on democracy starts in states, which means it starts where you are, wherever you are. Uh, the, but with that comes a couple key principles that I go through in the book. One, we got to run everywhere and you can play a role in running everywhere. Number two, we have to engage an electorate, and this includes young voters, that has basically been the direct target of voter suppression for decades. And because they've been the direct, the Obama coalition writ large, has been an absolute target of voter suppression for decades. And you can play a role, I don't care where you are, in getting a part of the electorate that was targeted to keep minority rule going, eliminated through purging and voter ID, and through just sometimes stepping away from democracy because they don't feel like it's helped their own lives and you can play a role in re-engaging a part of the electorate that is not right now not really part of the democratic conversation at the scale it needs to be uh, and so i'd say those you know, running everywhere re-engaging the part of the electorate and seeing that your own footprint in life all the things you do if you're at school if you're if you're at a nonprofit, if you volunteer at one if you know the mayor of a city your footprint in your life is your single best tool to lift democracy, but don't just think you use it for a little bit of money, a little bit of time. There's so many things you could do to lift democracy once you realize that you're on the front line of that. And I go through in my book that's sitting behind me, I literally have like work, I'm so intense about this. I have worksheets saying to people, fill it out. If you fill it out, and I give examples, you will see there's so many things you could do to make sure that every homeless person walking through a homeless shelter gets registered to vote. Sherrod Brown convinced every McDonald's in Ohio when he was Secretary of State to put on the tray a voter registration form. Every mayor of every city could have every single person who walks through the doors of every rec center, every library, uh, register to vote, get on that early vote list. If you know the mayor, ask him to do that. There's so much more you can do once you realize that that's where the battle is, and and Mm -hmm. I try and walk through that in the book. But that first step of of seeing that you have a role in this where you are is— the most important step, and if everyone takes it, we scale up our battle for democracy in a way that's winning against a very high level attack on democracy. That if we don't scale up, could could still win the day. So it's it's the the simple act of taking agency over, and I think is the most important one.
0: I think that is great advice, and I think that hopeful note is the best way to end this. David Pepper, thank you so much for your work in Ohio and for saving democracy, one person, one county, one state at a time. Thank you.
2: Thanks for Thank you, you David. For hard work.
0: Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. But in the meantime, you can subscribe right here on YouTube.com/blinkon so you don't miss an episode, or follow us wherever you listen to your podcast—whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen—you can listen to us there as well. Thank you everyone for watching and listening and Jill and I will see you next week for another episode.
1: Bye for now.